Welcome today to Grace. We're so glad that you are here. Well, his uh, story is really like a tragic opera. It started off well enough. Uh, in his younger years, Solomon knew the joys and the exhilaration of love expressed within marriage. And he wrote about that in a book called The Song of Solomon. It was magnificent. And then in his middle years, he also lived life quite well. Uh, God gave him a lot of wisdom, and he gave himself to magnificent projects and got a lot accomplished, both through his personal leadership directives as well as his uh, interactions with nations around. But as often happens, as Solomon grew older, uh, there's something about his successes that bred pride in him. He had an overweening pride, and he honestly developed an entitlement mentality. And he began to drift and drift far from God. And we've been reading and studying about the story of a man who is searching for meaning in life, but he's doing it tragically without God in the equation. He's trying to look at life, as he calls it, under the sun, life purely lived from an experiential, empirical point of view, what he can see, taste, touch, all he can experience with his own senses. And here's his conclusion. He has concluded after years of wandering and wasting away his life, he's concluded that it's all meaningless. 35 times he uses that word. It's meaningless, utterly meaningless. And so for 11 chapters... We've been seeing the story of a man who is wandering, drifting from God, looking for answers in life apart from God, and he's come up quite empty. But now we get to chapter 12, and wow, does he ever turn a corner. In fact, in chapter 12, he begins by saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Imagine this old man now, his life pretty well spent, started well, but is ending poorly, and he looks back and he says, listen, don't make the mistakes I made, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Be aware that remembering here means not just thinking of him or acknowledging that he's there, but bringing him into the very core and center of your life. That's what it means to remember him. And he gives us here some solid reasons to remember our creator. That's what I want to talk with you about today. One of the reasons to remember our creator is as your creator, he understands you better than anyone else. I find it interesting that in the very beginning of the Bible, God is, first of all, before any other identification, God is identified as our creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. His first identification is as creator. Richard Dawkins is the longtime Oxford University professor and one of the leaders in the so-called new atheism. He's now a quite old man. He's gone through a stroke, I believe, at this point. I'm not sure he's real active much anymore. But Richard Dawkins, in his, I think, first book called The Selfish Gene, 
wrote, and I quote, the universe that we observe has at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And he essentially says there, not in these exact words, but he basically says, just deal with it. Get used to it. Stop looking for meaning in life. But we can't. Humans don't stop looking for meaning because there's something inside of every one of us today that says there's got to be more. There's got to be something else, something more than this. Why do we do that? I believe it's one of those little moments of light in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon makes this statement in chapter 3, verse 11. He, that is God, has also set eternity in the hearts of men. There's a capacity in every human heart that says, I was made for something bigger, something more than this. Eternity is this multidimensional awareness. <clears throat> There's a lot more to life than just being here and now. And at the end of this book now, <clears throat> Solomon is trying to find meaning, meaning that he could not find merely in the material world. And he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because as he's explained earlier, it's simply meaning cannot be found in purely naturalistic explanations. By the way, I want to go back and revisit just a few of those verses that explain what he concluded if there's no God now in the equation. If there's no God, chapter 3, verse 19, man's fate's like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. In other words, if life is lived purely from a naturalistic point of view, then we're simply clever animals, you and I. Clever animals. Here today, gone tomorrow. But for what purpose? Or in chapter 3, verse 21, he said, Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. In other words, who knows if you and I have any more significance in life than a dog or a cow or a cockroach, for that matter, if there is no God and life is lived purely under the sun. This world is all there is. Chapter 9, he says, all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. If there's no God now, this is his conclusion. The clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. If there's no God, he's saying, what's the point to life? No wonder he cries out in the book and says, so I hated life. Of course you would. If there's no God. No afterlife, nothing to look forward to, nothing but this purely naturalistic existence. And so he quips in chapter 8, so I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Why? Because tomorrow we die. So, hey, since this is all there is, just live for now. Now, some of you may be asking, Pastor X, are you saying that we should remember our creator because without a creator, we can't make sense out of life? 
No, I'm saying you ought to remember your creator because your creator has revealed himself to you in some pretty powerful ways. He's revealed himself through creation and through conscience and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that even God's revelation in creation, which I would argue is actually the weakest of those three, my opinion, Christ is obviously the most glorious revelation of God the Father. I believe the revelation through our conscience and this moral revelation God has put in every human heart, I believe that is the next most powerful. And I believe actually that as awesome as it is, creation is the weakest of those three revelations. But are you listening? I believe there's enough evidence in creation. It's so significant that it's actually not difficult to believe in a creator. I'm holding here in my hand a smartphone. Most of you use these in one form or another. And wow, this phone keeps perfect time. I can look up all kinds of things uh, on the internet. Uh, I can have a reminder list here. I can make tasks for myself. I can play games if I'm bored. Believe it or not, this phone, you can actually make phone calls on it. I mean, it's just... It's actually amazing all the things that this phone can do. Now, you can't convince me that this phone that functions perfectly and keeps perfect time, you can't convince me that it came about when someone threw a firecracker in a garbage can in the backyard. No. When you have a phone that keeps perfect time and works as well as this, you've got to believe that there is a smartphone designer. Or think about the building that you're sitting in right now. Oh, trust me, it has its quirks. It's certainly not perfect. But surely no one would walk up and say, you know what, I just have trouble believing that you actually believe that someone designed and constructed this building. I can't believe that you, you're so naive as to believe that. I mean, I've always followed the theory that Years ago, there was just some forest here, and there were these trees standing, and a tornado came through here and just whirled everything up and buzzed up the lumber, and when the tornado was gone, boom, here was the building. No, no one would think that way. Any rational person knows that when there's a building with design and function, there has to be a builder. And the universe in which we live is far more complex than a smartphone we use or a building that we erect. It's perfectly designed for our utilization. Now, we humans mess it up some, to be sure. But it's called the balance of nature. How can there be such an intricate creation without a creator? That's why the psalmist explodes with wonder. When he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Sir James Jeans was one of the most respected and prominent modern astronomers. And he said, and I quote, that the more he examined the vast expanses of space and the tremendous complexity of these things, the more the universe, get this now, the more the universe seemed to be one gigantic thought of a great mathematician. This is a man with incredible intelligence. 
Or consider the leader Abraham Lincoln. Some consider the greatest president America's ever had. He said, and I quote, I never gaze at the stars without feeling that I'm looking into the face of God. I can see how it might be possible for man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist because of all the mess of humanity. But I cannot conceive how he could look up into the sky and say, there is no God. And Abraham Lincoln was no fool. Solomon says, look, remember your creator because effects have causes. Effects have causes. And while you're young and trying to live life with all of its dreams and ambitions and aspirations and hopes, don't make the mistake I made, he says. You have a creator who knows you and loves you and has a plan for your life, and he understands you better than anyone. Remember him. But secondly, we should remember our creator before your life gets complicated with the impact of poor decisions. You know, that happens in life, doesn't it? The longer we go, the more tendency, the more likelihood there is that our life's going to get a bit complicated because of the decisions we make. That eminent theologian of our time, John Cougar Mellencamp, you know him, great theologian, in his song Jack and Diane says, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. You know that's true for millions and millions of people. Solomon says here, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Catch this line, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Remember him while you're young, before you go down some bad roads and make poor decisions and complicate things. Solomon's story is that it's possible, it's very possible to start off well, but make bad decisions toward the end of your journey. In the New York City Marathon in 1994, a runner, the leading runner, took a wrong turn just seven-tenths of a mile from the end. Now remember, this is a 26.2-mile race, the marathon, and just seven-tenths of a mile from the, end, from the finish line, he took a wrong turn. And police and fans wildly waved their arms until they finally persuaded Mexican runner Herman Silva to turn around. He'd gone over 40 yards in the wrong direction. He went back, got back on the course, and miraculously overcame almost a disastrous ending as he won the marathon in the closest finish in history he won it by two seconds now you know what that tells me no matter how late in life you make mistakes and go down bad roads there should be time i hope there's time to recover temporary mistakes don't have to mean your ultimate defeat character weaknesses don't have to mean that you're utterly ruined but I want to be crystal clear here about what I'm saying and what Solomon, I think, has to teach us. Generally speaking, generally speaking, 
the decisions you make for good or bad are mostly made in your younger years. That's why the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth. But temptation is not limited just to the young. I would say today that more subtle temptations and just about as powerful come to those who are older. You can wreck your life near the end of life. Solomon did. Solomon imploded, even though he'd had a glorious past and a wonderful start in his life. You can make poor decisions and complicate things. I believe God wants young people to enjoy life. In fact, just a couple of verses earlier, chapter 11, he said, be happy, young man, while you're young. Give your heart. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Imagine that. Be happy. Be happy, young person. May your heart give you joy. And just two verses later, he says, remember your creator when you're young. Now, think about this. Think about this. A lot of people think these two things can't go together. He says, be glad, be happy, young person, while you're young. And then he says, remember your creator while you're young. Many people think those don't go together. Yes, they do. They coalesce into the same thing. Because when you find your happiness and joy, you find it when you're reconciled to God, your creator. And when you know him, you've got a sense of purpose. Why? Because not only does life make sense, you know where you come from, you know what your life is about, you understand your purpose, you know where you're going in the future. But you've got someone to guide you. Now, I did a lot of youth ministry in years gone by, and I know a lot of young people today, and I want to tell you something I believe about young people. Many younger people are afraid to let God lead and guide them. Does that sound strange to you? It's the truth. Many young people are scared to death of yielding, surrendering their life to God and saying, Lord, would you guide me and lead me? Here's why. Here's why. I've concluded they're afraid of where he will lead them and what he will ask them to do. And so they're afraid. They're afraid to make that decision to open their life and bring God into the very core and center of their life. If you consider yourself a younger person today, I want to tell you something. Committing your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the greatest decision you will ever make. I've made a lot of good decisions in my life by God's grace. I married a young woman named Deborah Susan Richardson. Oh, what a good decision. What a blessing in my life. I'm so glad that I made a decision almost 27 years ago, to plant a church in the Capital District of New York. What a blessing that has been in my life. I've made some good decisions by God's grace to go to a certain school or get involved in a certain ministry and so on and so forth. But I want to tell you something, folks. Are you listening to me? The best decision I've ever made in my life by far is when as a 13-year-old teenager... I surrendered my life completely to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, would you be my forgiver? Forgive my sin, come in, take control of my life. I've never regretted a single day of following Christ. Can you say that today? Have you been 
one of those who come to that moment of decision and yielded your life to Christ? Young people need a cause to follow. Young people need something to give their life to. Let that cause be Jesus Christ and his kingdom. You will never regret a single day that you follow Christ. But the third reason he says we need to remember our creator is before our body starts failing with age. Now, I've got a hunch that most Americans really struggle with this thing called aging. We pretend, really, that we're not getting older. In fact, we've got all these cute little sayings. I wonder if you've heard them before. You're not getting older. You're getting better, right? We know these. Oh, yeah, we've used them probably. You're not getting older. You're getting better. Ah, you're only as old as you feel, right? Yeah. You're only as old as you feel or as young as you feel. Life begins at 40. You were afraid to answer that, weren't you? Because 50 is the new 40, right? Life begins at 40. We need to change it to 60 or 70 today, the way life is kind of expanding and the life expectancy is getting longer. These aren't wrinkles. These are expression lines. That's what they are. <laughs> and so we try to cover up the aging process with cosmetics and tummy tucks and liposuction and the oil of delay. I mean, ole. But ole is all about delay. We're trying to delay it. We're trying to cover it over. Another strong thing I see in people who are aging is they want a more carefree life, and I don't blame them. They want less pressure, less stress in their lives. I was talking to a guy just this week at the gym, and he's just a casual acquaintance, and, and he was saying how that although he's had a wonderful business through all these years, he's had enough, he said. He, he doesn't want all the travel anymore. He said, I don't want all the stress that's on me. He's had a marvelously successful business. But he said, I'm thinking, you know, between Social Security and the money we've been able to pack away, we're going to be just fine. I don't want the stress. And I think that's fairly typical. We want to ditch the stress. We want a more carefree existence. One newly retired man described his daily existence like this. He said, I wake up each morning and dust off my wits. I pick up the paper and read the obits. If my name is missing, I know I'm not dead. So I eat a good breakfast and go back to bed. Now, that sounds like a carefree life, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the kind of life we all want. People respond to aging in different ways. We may try to deny it, cover it over, want a more carefree life. But as the great theologian Tom Petty, I'm only quoting the giants today, folks. Mellencamp, Petty, Tom Petty said, if you're not getting older, you're dead. And Tom is absolutely right. If you're not getting older, you're dead. It's happening and we can't stop it. But Solomon says, look, remember your creator before your body starts failing with age. Now, this passage we're about to look at is one of the most fascinating in all of Scripture. It's the most descriptive passage about aging. Look at it with me. Chapter 12, starting in verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, 
and the clouds return after the rain. What does that phrase mean? The clouds returning after the rain is typical of many people in old age. They have one problem after another. You thought, okay, that storm is gone. Oh, here comes another one. One problem after another. When the keepers of the house tremble, what are the keepers of the house? That's your hands. Your hands have this tremor in them, and you just can't stop it. And the strong men stoop. That's typically, in Hebraic literature, a reference to the legs, the strongest muscles in the body. When the grinders cease because they're few, talking about the teeth. Before the great dental practices that we have today, Typically, older people had fewer and fewer teeth. The grinders are failing. And those looking through the windows grow dim. Your sight is diminishing. Maybe you have macular degeneration or some other problem. When the doors to the street are closed, believe it or not, that is a Hebraic euphemism for constipation. It is. The doors to the street are closed. That's why you need the all bran and the prunes I was talking about last week. God bless you. And the sound of grinding fades. The grinding of corn, barley, wheat, other grains was a typical sound in this ancient environment. And so it's saying the daily duties that you have, you just can't seem to keep up anymore. When men rise up at the sound of birds, you wake erratically, four or five in the morning, you can't go back to sleep. But all their songs grow faint. You're losing your hearing. When men are afraid of heights, you're afraid you're going to fall and break your hip, which often happens to the elderly. And of dangers in the streets. You just don't want to get out there anymore and mix it up. You don't want to go where there's a bunch of crowds because you get jostled around. You don't want to get out there in the streets anymore. You'd rather stay home. When the almond tree blossoms. Do you ever see an almond tree in full blossom? It's got these white and slightly silvery blossoms on it. It's talking about white hair of the elderly. And the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred. That's another Hebraic euphemism for lack of sexual desire or sexual dysfunction. In fact, the exact Hebrew word there is talking about the caperberry, which was a well-known ancient aphrodisiac. But it does no good anymore. The man goes to his eternal home... And mourners go about, about the streets. What a description of aging, huh? We've got only one life and it goes so quickly. You know, I've always thought, wouldn't it be great if God gave us a practice life? Wouldn't you love that? What if he gave us 40 years to practice? And he said, all right, you got 40 years. Make all the mistakes you want. Live as recklessly as you'd like. Don't worry about the decisions you make because at the end of 40 years, this is just practice, we're going to give you a do-over. And I want you to take all the experience and all the knowledge and all the wisdom that you've gained through the mistakes you made in those practice years, and now I want you to do it over and do it right this time. But we don't have that privilege, do we? The truth? The truth is I'm aging and I will never again get to live this day. When it's done, it's done. It's over. I can't get it back. So while you're young, remember your creator, he says, because you're going to get old. And you will regret if you lived your life purely under the sun without God in the equation. When you get settled down into your routines and you see that life is going nowhere fast. 
Don't do it. Be sure to remember your creator and make God the very center and focus of your one and only life. But then there's a fourth and final reason he gives us. Remember your creator before you die. Before you die. Verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, there are six poetic images there, and five out of the six have to do with decomposition. He talks about the silver cord severed, golden bowl broken, pitcher shattered, wheel broken, dust returns to the ground. It can't, by the way, if you ever wondered why at a graveside service, pastors and priests often say, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, this is where that idea came from. We came from dust, we return to dust. This sounds like items on a garbage heap. But he's talking here about you and me. All the things he mentions here are going to decompose or disintegrate in some way, except one. There's one thing, and that's the sixth image he mentions. Did you notice it? He says, the spirit returns to God who gave it. Every part of us that is tangible and physical is going to be going to perish. It's going to be severed, shattered, broken, returned to dust. There's only one part that won't. The spirit will return to God. What is this saying? I'll tell you what it's saying. One day, old Rex Keener's going to die. And you might as well put on my tombstone, everything that can die of Rex Keener is here. Because there are things that can die, and it's all here. His body. But there is that which cannot die, and the real person is not here. The spirit returns to the God who gave it. Now, here's the question of all questions. In what condition will your spirit be when it returns? In what condition is your spirit, the real you, going to return to God? Now, by returning to God, this is a reference here to this thing called judgment. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed to a person once to die, and after that to face judgment. We will stand before God, every one of us. I will, you will, everyone listening to my voice right now has an appointment to stand before God. And the issue that day will be, am I in Christ? Have I trusted in his atoning death for me on the cross? A death I should have died, but he took my place there on the cross at Calvary so that I could be forgiven and go free. There is no good of my own that I will plead on that day. We can only on that day throw ourselves completely on Christ. He alone is my hope. One of the most beloved hymns of all time is that old hymn called Rock of Ages. 
my goodness, how many people has that inspired? How sobering is its message? And it is often sang at funerals. But have you ever, ever noticed that line in it? It's just one of those lines that is powerful in its punch. The line I'm speaking of says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. What in the world does that mean? Nothing in my hand I bring. When I come to judgment day, when I come to, when my spirit returns to the God who made it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You know what that's saying? I come to heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ or I don't come at all. That's what that's saying. You come to heaven through the atoning death, the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, or you don't come at all. It's not have I prayed a prayer. It's not am I a member of a church. It's not if I tried to live a good life and let my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. The question in that day is, the only way I can be sure I'm saved is have I trusted in Jesus Christ alone? And what he did for me at the cross. So let me ask you today. I'm being very personal, I know. But this is important stuff. If that moment right now was for you, what condition would your spirit, the real you, return to God and stand before him? Solomon is saying here in very sobering words, a man who's tried it all, he's saying, look, you're going to die. You're not going to die. You can dismiss me as a blubbering old man if you want to, but I'm telling you, I've been there. I've done that. You're going to die. Remember your creator before you die. Jesus put it like this. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And can I tell you something? You would be aghast. You would be aghast at what people are giving in exchange for their souls. Because it's so trivial. Remember your creator. Because as your creator, he understands you better than anyone Remember your creator before your life gets complicated with poor decisions. Remember your creator before your body begins to fail with aging. And by all means, whatever you do, remember your creator before you die. I just can't help but believe that there are young people listening to me right now. And even though you've pondered it before, you've never really yielded your life to Jesus Christ. Today is that day. I can't help but believe that there are some perhaps older people here right now listening to my voice. And although you would have to say, I missed my opportunity back then. God, please forgive me for those wasted and wandering years. Thank you that when I trust in you, when I trust in you, because you're drawing me to you right now, I can be forgiven and saved. Is that you? Is God speaking to you right now by his spirit? I believe he is. I believe God is speaking to many hearts and lives right now, and now is your moment of transformation. I don't know how your journey lines up with that of Solomon. Maybe you felt like you're looking in the mirror as you've studied this 
over these weeks. Or maybe your journey has been quite different. But here's the point. As long as God is drawing you, listen, this is your moment. I'm going to pray a prayer right now and invite many of you to do what we've seen hundreds of people do through the years. And they mark this as their turning point. They mark this as their moment where they open their life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I invite you to pray it silently right where you are, along with me, phrase by phrase. And as God is drawing you, whether you're young or old or anywhere in between, God will meet you right where you are. Let's pray together. Can we bow our heads? Can we bow our heads today just for these moments? And I'm going to pray this prayer, and I ask you to pray it right in your heart, silently after me. Just say it to God. Whisper it to him. Oh, God, I am a sinner. I've made some bad turns in this life, gone down some wrong roads, a lot of poor decisions. Please forgive me. I commit my life to you. I repent of all of my selfishness, all of my sin, and I put my life into your hands. Please take me just as I am. Save me, Lord. I give my life to you. Come into my life and begin to change me from the inside out. Father, I pray for those who have meant that prayer, who have sincerely and very soberly and in a very solemn way said, Lord, I remember you. I bring you into the very center and core of my life right now. Young and old, Father, I ask that you would seal them, save them, set their feet on a path of growth and life change that only you can bring. And Lord, may this be the moment they mark as the turning point in their life when they remember their creator and you became their savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.